welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the Madden America podcast. And this week I'm delighted to say that we have the second in our series of chats with Dr. Lee Coleman. Lee, welcome. It's so nice to get to chat again for our our second interview and uh, just to remind people that for people that want to know a bit more about you we, we covered your career and you know some of your broader thoughts on psychiatry in our, in our first uh, interview which is available on Madden America which people can go and listen to. So this time I thought it might be nice to perhaps delve into a bit more detail and focus perhaps on one chapter from your book Reign of Error and I think I mentioned last time a chapter that really kind of stood out for me was the chapter dealing with not guilty by reason of insanity and in in that chapter you mention a a few trials and a, a few proceedings that kind of give a hint to why there are problems with this approach in the courtroom. So I wondered if we could start by perhaps getting into the relevant chapter in Reign of Error to kind of see where we get to. Okay, James, thank you very much. It is, of course, always a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you and knowing that there are people out there listening because that's the whole point of it. It's for you people out there. So I think we need to let the audience hear how I came to be exposed to these subjects and actually end up working in these areas as it unfolded in my work. So we're going to do the best we can. I think you're going to find it very interesting, but very revealing about what psychiatrists don't know how to do. That is the theme. They don't know how to do any of the things that society so desperately seems to want them to be able to do. So much so that the society keeps telling psychiatry, oh, come on, you can do it. Keep doing it. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about the past, the present, and the future. And psychiatrists and other mental health professionals, too, especially psychologists, are assumed to have special skills in reconstructing what your knowledge and or intention was at some time in the past for many different situations like lawsuits or criminal accusations. They're also expected to make determinations of your present abilities, your capacities, whether you're competent for a certain undertaking to raise a child, competent to understand the charges against you or not. And one final thing, they're expected to be crystal ball gazers. They're expected to look into the future and tell us whether you might be a dangerous person, whether you might commit violence to other people or to yourself, or whether or not you'll be able to raise a child, whether or not you'll be a person we can trust with military secrets, all kinds of things. What we're going to talk about this morning is why they don't know how to do any of them, And we're hurting ourselves, we're hurting everybody by continuing to think that we can. So here's the way I want to do it. Basically, last time, we talked about the fact that I had gotten involved in issues around prison sentencing. We're talking about 1971. That was only months after I had arrived in California after finishing my residency training in Colorado and then my military duty that I had to serve there. 
I got interested in the fact that prisoners, I learned that people in California, especially, but other states too, could be sentenced to think something like six months to life in prison. Can you imagine going to prison and not knowing when you're going to get out and learning, especially from a book by George Jackson that I talked about last time, Soledad Brother it was called, that psychiatrist was a big part of the decision as to whether you would get out or not based on a treatment model. All right, well, that article, and it was called Prisons, the Crime of Treatment. It was a treatment model. We would rehabilitate prisoners and then release them only when they're ready. And I argue that's a kind of torture, a psychological torture, not knowing when you're going to get out. The article became very popular amongst, I'd say, the kind of progressive prison reform type of people in the San Francisco Bay Area. And as a result, I got invited to go to a meeting at the prison in Vacaville, California. Interestingly, they call it the California Medical Facility. And if it ain't a prison, I never seen one. So I got invited to talk to the prisoners of, the, of uh, who were had a, a group that the prison allowed them to have meetings. It's called the Black Cultural Association. Okay, these were mostly black prisoners, but not all. They were, but they were all prisoners who identified with some kind of radical, pr progressive ideas about how there was a connection between social inequality and crime. And they invited me to go up there because of what I said in my article. Being a psychiatrist who agreed with prisoners about indeterminate sentencing, being torture, was very attractive to them. I went up there, I talked to them, and I was greeted like I was a visiting dignitary of the First Order. They loved it because they could see that I understood that I, despite being white and a psychiatrist, which to them... You can imagine how they felt about such things. They could see this guy gets it. Okay, so by the time of 1973 or 1974, I began to hear about some things in which I had some background, and that is the Black Cultural Association had morphed into a very radical and unacceptable organization called the Symbionese Liberation Army. This was a subset of the people who had been in this Black Cultural Association. And they managed, after they had assassinated Marcus Foster, a guy who was anything but a threat to anybody, they assassinated him for ridiculous reasons. So, I mean, I obviously paid close attention once I learned that people from that group I had spoken to or evolved from that, had now not only assassinated Marcus Foster, but now had kidnapped Patty Hearst. Patty Hearst, when she was finally apprehended, initially was saying, don't talk to me about my being brainwashed. You guys are all pigs. Power to the people, that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, after she was in jail and she was represented by an attorney, F. Lee Bailey, and F. Lee Bailey was going to claim that she was incompetent to stand trial. That was ridiculous. It was a strategy 
F. Lee Bailey wanted her to be found incompetent so that she would be examined by a lot of mental health professionals. And mental health professionals would put diagnostic labels and make all kinds of interpretations, which would then set the stage for a mental defense for the actual trial. So he was arguing in front of a court that she was incompetent. And they had two mental health professionals who were going to testify if the judge would let them that she was incompetent. One was Jolly West, head of UCLA's psychiatry department and a big name in psychiatry. And he was going to say that she was brainwashed. And therefore, how could she defend herself if she was suffering from the effects of brainwashing? And the other person who was going to testify that she was incompetent was Dr. Margaret Singer, another big name from psychology at University of California, Berkeley. So we're not talking about little podunk schools here. We're talking about powerful educational institutions. Margaret Singer was going to base her testimony on listening to a tape recording of, Mar of uh, Patty Hearst, saying that she could use voice stress analysis to tell that she was incompetent. Fortunately, the judge ruled that both of them would not be allowed to testify. So it didn't really go anywhere. And, you know, she eventually uh, would have gone to trial. But what happened is, as this was cranking up to see what the judge would rule about these West and Singer, this is where it got closer to my involvement in the insanity defense. I called up an acquaintance, a professional acquaintance, I would say, George Alexander, dean of the Santa Clara University Law School. And we were not bosom buddies, but we respected each other's work. He knew of my work being critical of psychiatry. He was a colleague of Thomas Saas, somebody that I would get to know some years later. I called up George Alexander. I said, George, listen, in the federal building, there are hundreds of reporters waiting for the judge's rulings about this issue of Patty Hearst's competence. Let's go down to the federal building and announce a press conference because they'll be right in the building. They're bored down there waiting for something to happen. We'll never be able to get an audience that easily. And let's tell them about the fact that psychiatrists are not, and psychologists have no skills to determine whether somebody's competent to stand trial. Okay, he said, all right, let's go down, we'll do it. So we did. And it was easy, as I said, because the, 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 the reporter showed up, the, filled the room, and we said what we said. We told them why we didn't, psychiatrists and psychologists couldn't do it. And it was reported on the nightly news, which is why we wanted to do it. We wanted to get the word out, not just for Patty Hearst's case, in fact, not at all for that case, but just for the public would know about it. So here's where it got to really be interesting. Sure enough, I got a call within a day or two from a lawyer. And you know what? It wasn't a defense attorney who you'd normally think of as being the ones who might be interested in the opinions of a psychiatrist in mental cases in the courtroom. No, it was a prosecutor. The prosecutors called me up from Sacramento County, and they said, Dr. Coleman, we heard what you said in your press conference. And you know, we get trials all the time where defense psychiatrists come in and talk about, you know, 
multiple personality or he didn't know what he was doing. Mental illness drove him to it. Dr. Cohn, would you be willing to come into court and talk about what you said in the press conference? Psychiatrists don't know how to do those kind of things. And I said, yes, I would be willing to do that. As long as you don't expect me to give an opinion about the person's state of mind, if you want me to talk about psychiatry, yes, I'll do that. That led to a dozen years of repeated appearances in court, testifying on behalf of the prosecution, but never talking about the mind of the person who's accused, never to excuse them or to accuse them, either one, to simply say to a jury, don't listen to that kind of testimony, or to be more precise, they must listen to it according to the law the judge will tell them. But how much weight, maybe no weight, maybe a lot of weight, Dr. Coleman has told you, don't give it any weight. And that's what I did. Okay. So that's a little illustration of how psychiatrists and psychologists are going into court and testifying about all three issues, Mm. past, present, and future. Thank you, Lee. That was really helpful background and really, really helps to set the scene for people listening. And just just before we go into some of the details, I, I just wondered... I was curious, Lee, did you get any pushback from psychiatry when you started to speak out about the competence, if you like, of psychiatrists' behavior in the courtroom? Because it struck me in reading that chapter in Reign of Error, I I recall that the American Psychiatric Association actually wrote a letter themselves, didn't they, to try and put a, a, a border around what psychiatrists could or couldn't do. So they they might well have recognized themselves that there were limitations, but I just wondered if you'd had any pushback from psychiatry about uh, that kind of view. Well, yeah, pushback. That's a nice way of putting it. I've had to put up with 50 years of uh, really insulting, gratuitous, ignorant opposition from whatever community I was being critical of. Both sides have done it. In other words, as we go on in this and future discussions, you're going to hear about times where I was testifying for one side. And then as the issue changes in different kind of cases, the other attorneys would be then on the opposite side of what I'm saying. And they never fail to use what I call ad hominem attacks. They will attack me rather than what I say. So, I mean, it's endless. For example, Dr. Coleman, uh, are you a member of the American Psychiatric Association? No. And immediately they're trying to imply anybody who isn't a member of the most powerful psychiatric organization must not be believable. And that's just a very mild one. Uh, The fact is I wouldn't belong to the American Psychiatric Association. I was for about two years until I finally said, I'm not going to pay my dues money to an organization that says the things that they say and that stands for the things. I mean, like they believe in shock treatment. Why should I belong to an organization like that? So, yes, I have gotten pushback all the way through. And uh, uh, it hasn't been pleasant. But you know what? I decided early on in my career. I don't want to be a member of this family. I'm not, I I resigned from the American Psychiatric Association at that time. 
I don't really want to be a member of that family. So uh, I find it actually not too uh, upsetting to put up with it. But if I have a platform to explain. So, yes, I have gotten pushback throughout. Comes with the territory and uh, I can live with it. So um, just to go back to some of the some of the details in in the chapter in Reign of Error. So you make clear in the book, and, and again, I hadn't really thought about it until I, I read it, that in, insanity is not a word that we use in general mental health terminology anymore, but it, it, it still has a place in legal terminology, doesn't it? So could you help me understand what insanity means, perhaps from a legal perspective? Yes, and that's very, very important question. Um, I don't think you could possibly realize just how important it is, but we'll get to it. So Yes, insanity in the legal context does not have anything to do with the traditional meaning of the word. Traditionally, the word means really crazy. Psychotic would be another word. And I think it, that is something that happens. We have all these lies that psychiatry tells about it being illness. That is just you know nonsense. But Psychosis can be real. It can be caused by medical causes, genuine medical diseases, not the stuff that psychiatry is claiming. But it can also just become, and most often is, a mental uh, you know, uh, breakdown. The person loses the ability to be rational, but there's a lot of pain involved and a lot of you know, uh, loss of the ability to communicate. It leads to distancing from other people, which should tell us how serious it is for the person who's going through it. That's what we mean by insanity. The law should never have used that word in the first place because here's what the law means. It means traditionally that you didn't know what you were doing was wrong when you did it. You were in such a strange state of mind that you didn't know that it was wrong. Now, Reformers, mainly from mental health, believe psychiatrists, were the main people who were able to convince lawmakers in society that we should broaden that definition and say, well, maybe it should be either you didn't know it was wrong, mental illness uh, prevented you from knowing, or maybe you couldn't help it anyway. Mental illness took over your free will, and therefore we won't hold you responsible because you were insane. Different states, sometimes more recently, they've taken away the second part and said, no, we're going to go back. Just did you know that it was wrong? But there's so many ironies to this not knowing the difference. Because what happens is, you know that if you are found legally insane, you can end up being punished far worse than if you just were found guilty and sent to prison. You could be drugged for the rest of your life and suffer permanent brain damage. That's your punishment. Along with, you can be locked up longer, not shorter. The theory was, it would be kinder to you because you had an illness at the time. The reality is you could end up being punished worse, including bodily punishments for a longer period of time, 
or it could be just the opposite. You could actually get out so soon after a violent crime that it's an outrage to anybody's morality. And you can imagine if you have money and connections, there's a lot better chance that this crazy system will work in your favor rather than against you. So it's a total crapshoot. So that's the differences, but not only the differences of definition, but the differences of consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That that was really helpful. So in, in Reign of Error, you, you relate the case of Dr. Decaplanet. And I think that story illustrates some of these points quite well. So, you know, it's it's a lot to ask because it was some time ago, but I wondered if yeah. you could kind of help relate kind of what happened in, in that case, because I think it's, it, um, you know, an example like that brings to mind why this could be problematic. Yeah, yeah. Now, because we're talking about writing that I did 45 years ago, and I picked a case that was 20 years old at the time I wrote about it, I used a book by Carolyn Ansparker called The Trial of Dr. DeCaplany. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to show just how absurd mental health professionals could be in those trials. And so let me just give you a couple of illustrations. Dr. DeCaplany was an anesthesiologist. He was, so obviously he was a medical doctor. He was a capable person, but he had real trouble with his wife. And, you know, they were just not involved. He began to think she must be having an affair with somebody else. And he decided he wanted to retaliate. So he brought some bottles of acid, which were at his disposal from the hospital where he worked. And he tied up his wife. He took steps ahead of time so that he would not be heard in what he was about to do. He turned up the radio full blast in his house. He went to neighbors and asked them to please forgive him, but he had a special need to do that. I can't remember what the reason was. It was, of course, when I tell you next what he did to drown out the sounds, because after he tied up his wife, he poured acid. I'm talking about concentrated sulfuric acid over her body, her face and her genital area specifically. She survived a number of hours and then died. The trial should, if it had understood and the law was not contaminated the way it was, his behavior, the things that he did in preparation for this horrible crime would have made it clear that he knew what he was doing because he was covering it up. But nonetheless, they had three experts who testified. One of them was a psychiatrist who was analytically oriented and had a belief in multiple personality disorder, by the way, something which is a complete fabrication doesn't exist. And he testified that it really wasn't Dr. DeCaplany that did it. Even though DeCaplany had confessed once he was arrested. No, this doctor said that it was Pierre LaRoche, an alter ego, an alter personality. He was the one that was there at the time after the crime, he disappeared and Dr. DeCaplany came back. So we had multiple personality as the guilty party, which would mean Dr. DeCaplany would have been found insane, legally insane. Well, the defense wanted somebody more than that, so they got a psychologist. And this psychologist gave him some 
psychological tests. By the way, except in certain select situations, there really aren't many real psychological tests, certainly none that are legally relevant. And he said, he, one of the questions had to do, what's the meaning of eggs and seeds? And Dr. Kaplany responded, well, those are things that you can eat. Well, this psychologist concluded, no, no, that was the wrong answer. Eggs and seeds were the beginnings of creation. And that meant that Dr. DeCaplany was uh, suffering from a mental disorder in which he had a fixation on who else? His mother. That really, because he thought eggs and seeds were something to eat rather than the seeds of creation, it must have been that he was really thought he was killing his mother, not his wife. So therefore, he should be found insane on that basis. So I basically was talking about the absurdity of having a trial, which becomes kind of a mental health clinic, spends its time on issues in which one mental health professional describes the trunk of the elephant, and another mental health professional describes uh, the tail and blah, blah, blah. And they all have these different opinions, and it's all garbage instead of what was the person's behavior. So that was, that was the purpose of showing the Decaplany trial is that people with credentials, it doesn't mean a thing. The problem with psychiatry in the trials is that it can't do any of the things that are expected. Now, what happened to Dr. Decaplany is also very important too because it takes us into this issue of the future. Remember I said, we're gonna cover the past, the present and the future. So the trial of Dr. DeCaplin had to do with issues of his past. However, they didn't believe these doctors anyway. And so he was sentenced to prison. He got out in 10 years, however. Now was 10 years a sufficient sentence for the vicious premeditated murder by the most horrible means you can think of. My personal ethics, I don't have any greater ethics because I'm a psychiatrist, I'm just a guy. My personal ethics, I would say no. 10 years is not enough. I'm against the death penalty, but for reasons having to do with, it can't be administered equally. It's just can't be done. So other people might have a different opinion, but the point is he got out after 10 years. I would suspect it's probably because all those diagnostic labels probably influenced a parole board. The next person might, who was found not guilty by reason or found guilty of a crime might end up spending a lot more time. So the decision of when he got out of prison takes us right back to the issue of mental health professionals making predictions of whether you're ready to be released or not. That's another kind of trial that I have testified in regularly. You talk in the book there that uh, after the trial of Dr. DeCaplany, then, you, you know, the role of psychiatry expanded. So as you said, and already alluded to before, it, it's not so much now a question of what was the, the person's mental state at the time of whatever act they did or didn't commit, but now also psychiatry is responsible for saying, is this person going to be safe to be released into society at some point? Yes. Uh, you know, what's what's the foreseeable future for this person? And, and is that still going on in, in, in trials today? 
Oh, absolutely. And not just in criminal trials, but in all kinds of other things. Let's say that I testified for the prosecution in one of those kind of trials, which I've done, oh, about 150 or 60 times, because the defense brings in this kind of psychiatric nonsense, and the prosecutors are interested in my talking about the limitations of psychiatry skills in opposition to the defense's doctors. Now, remember, I never talk about the state of the guy's mind. I never say, oh, yes, he was sane. I talk about why psychiatrists don't know how to help. Okay, so let's say that I have attorney, we'll call him Jones, is the prosecutor has hired me to testify against Smith, defense attorney. Let's say that Smith is successful in getting the amount found insane. So he goes to the mental hospital, mental hospital slash prison. He's put on drugs, all kind of reports, all kind of labels, but eventually they say, okay, we think he's ready to have his sanity restored. What is the definition? Gets to another one of these legal definitions. Restoration of sanity has nothing to do with your past state of mind. It doesn't have to do with present state of mind. It has to do with future. Restoration of sanity under the law means that you're no longer considered dangerous. Now, you know what's happened to me a bunch of times? The defense attorney who successfully got him found insane will call me up. Dr. Coleman, you remember me in so-and-so case? You testified against me for the prosecution. Well, now the doctors at the hospital say, we think he's ready to be released. We want to have his sanity restored. Will you come and testify for us about whether psychiatrists have the skills to know whether somebody's dangerous? And I will say, yes, I will. And I do that because even though I don't like the fact that psychiatry is in there. The law is the law. And I can assist the people who are going to make the decision, come to a better decision under the law as it exists now. I'd like to change the law, but I can't do that in a courtroom. I have to go to the legislature to try to do that. So I will then say to him, yes, I will come and testify for you that psychiatrists so who will be now cross-examining me when I go to court for that kind of hearing? The same prosecutor who I testified for in the insanity trial. And so now the prosecutor, he's going to bring somebody who'll say, no, no, we can't release this guy. He's too dangerous. And the prosecutor will be attacking me. The same prosecutor who was using me in the trial of the insanity trial. So we went to two different issues, psychiatric garbage in all of it, and I'm there to try to explain the garbage and clear it out of the way. So it's been an interesting ride. And in the book, I try to show the inconsistencies, which really is a reflection of the fact that you're trying to illegitimately deal with difficult issues, crime and punishment. 
these are ethical questions. They're not easy questions. Mm. Those are all wrapped up with social issues. They're all wrapped up with justice issues. These are all things in the in the reign of error, and we'll get into it in future talks. But uh, so, yeah, your question gave me a perfect vehicle. Tell, we've now covered present state of mind. This is a little summation for our audience. Present state of mind incompetency things. We've gone to the past for insanity, issue of insanity and the future for dangerousness, danger to self, danger to others. You asked me, well, does it come into other kind of trials? Do you know that the state gives psychiatry the authority that no other kind of doctor has to force itself on you, a kind of rape for a doctor to force himself on your body? It's a kind of rape. False assault and battery should be considered that. The one branch of psychiatry that has no science is the one that is allowed to force something on you. How the hell can we reconcile that? So the issue of predicting dangerousness comes up every day throughout the world because all a psychiatrist has to do is check off a certain box, as simple as that, that in their opinion, you're a danger to yourself or others. Or another kind of prediction is, you won't be able to take care of yourself if we don't step in and take care of you. Now, taking care of you means drugging you and locking you up or telling you that if you don't take the drugs, then we'll lock you up. So those predictions are not only with us every single day, justifying what I consider criminal behavior. I think that particular chapter in Reign of Error, you use the word inconsistency, and I think that's a a brilliant word that, that that chapter starkly highlights the inconsistency where some people are underpunished i.e sent to prison for a shorter time than they really deserve to be and then other people are overpunished and they're perhaps sent to a psychiatric hospital for an indeterminate time they're given drugs which might bring on other problems for them and make them dependent and give them the problems of getting off the drugs in the future so psychiatric involvement in the courtroom seems to me to be at risk of failing either the individual or society or both at the same time. And I think, I think your, your chapter explains that really well. I guess my, the question that that leads me to naturally in my mind is, is how, do we, how do we do something about that? How do we stop that letting down the individual and society? All right. Well, you know what? You're always so right on the money. Your question how do we do it? How do we do it? And I'm going to talk about that, but I want to, you just, you just made a little mistake there, James, and I, I love it when you do that. You just said, instead of sending them to prison, we'll send them, they'll send them to a mental hospital. And everything you said was correct, but you forgot about the war of the words. Is what they call a mental hospital anything but a prison? No. It's another prison many times far worse. The fact that you will get more likely drugged against your will there than in a prison prison rather than a mental hospital slash prison. I've many times gone to talk to prisoners to get their side of what's going on so that if I'm then going to write a report for some hearing, I can reflect what the prisoner said. I don't try to analyze a prisoner. I don't do that. But I can take what the prisoner tells me and ask, well, why is the prisoner's version of events automatically 
worth nothing. And, and just what the psychiatrists say automatically assume. And what I will say to the prisoners, you know, I can tell you thought you'd get a better deal if you start talking about the voices and all the other stuff. Because they would say, you know, I didn't really believe that when I said it and so forth. I said, but you know, man, you made a pact with the devil when you did that. Because look what's happening now. Look at the look at the effects that you're getting from this medication, this drugs and so forth. See, I did it myself. I started to use the word medication. They're drugs. That's what they are. Okay, so yes, getting back to your question, what do we have to do? We have to get more people, ordinary people, who are just pissed off enough and can see it that they are willing to take some time out of their life to join with other people to start a movement. There is no chance, I mean no chance, that we can make a difference by appealing to any professional community. And that's not a criticism of any professionals that they're working for God's sake. They have to support their families or, you know, they, if they start to do very much within the community, they're in, they'll lose their job half the time, but there are lots of professionals who get it and want to do something. So to the extent they're able, we want them, you know, I'm in the easier phase of it now. I mean, I'm retired. I don't need to make any money. I'm not actively practicing anymore. So I don't have to worry about somebody making a claim that I should lose my license because of what I think. But that's just my situation. So we need thinking, care, concerned people who would be willing to join a movement to stir up trouble. By stir up trouble, I mean, we need to have demonstrations. We need to have media conferences. We need to get people who will go out on the street, go to legislatures, testify, especially people who've been through it. They, I consider them to be professionals in a sense. People who've been through the experience have firsthand knowledge that the psychiatrists don't have. It's been about the last year that I've been sort of trying to create a presence online which I really was out of touch with before that. All the subjects I'm talking about, of course, are 50, 40, 50 years old. And my overall impression is that there's a serious directional mistake. Not to be critical, because that's not the point, but I think, if, I think the emphasis has been on science and professionals. And we need all that, but I think the issues are not truly scientific issues. I think they're ethical and legal issues. And so I think anything that appeals to the average person and tries to empower them and get them to realize they're just as smart as the people with the credentials and movements which start at the street level and then bring in the professionals have a better chance. If you watch my YouTube, You'll get all that. It's right there for you. And then why do I want you to do that? So you can tell your friends. That's the only way we're going to get anything going. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, um, it's an excellent place to finish, I think, because you've given people out there a, a lot to think about. And I think the power of personal connection is something that corporations don't have that we do. 
you know, corporations are largely uh, remote and faceless, but we have the power of personal connection and the power of community. And I, I think that's, I think that's crucial. Well, you know what, let me just say one more thing about that. You know, if you care about what we're talking about and you don't tell enough people to get these podcasts and listen, and then they tell people, then the fact that you agree with this doesn't really count for much. We need you to be active. And I can give you my promise. I'm not going anywhere. The time that I have left, I'm not going anywhere, especially if I got James to hold on to. Well, thank you, Lee. You know, I'm so grateful to get to talk about these things with you. And, you know, I'm looking forward to our our next chats. All I got to say is promise me, audience, that you're coming back because I'm coming back. See you next time. Well, I just want to thank Lee for that discussion and to say that if you'd like to find out more about Lee and his work, there are links in the post that accompanies this interview on madinamerica.com. So, as always, thanks for listening, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit madinamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.